Hello, and welcome to the River of Life podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for service times and directions. That's riveroflifefl.com. Now, let's join Senior Pastor Henry Jones as he teaches from the Word of God. Yeah. James Parker is one of the finest, most faithful Christian men I've ever known in my life. And I love it when he ministers. And the Lord ministers through him. Thank you for that song. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 John. 1 John. I'll point out a couple of scriptures in a few moments, but this morning we are beginning a brand new study in the book of 1 John. And one of the things that's so exciting and so interesting to me about this book of 1 John is that when John wrote these words, when he penned these words that we're about to study, he was the last apostle. He was the last one. He was the last living apostle who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some who argue and say that there are modern-day apostles and apostolic ministries, and while I do believe that is the case to some degree, when it comes to those original apostles who were chosen by Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who ministered with Jesus, and who recorded his very words, when it comes to those original apostles... John was the last apostle. He was the last man standing. But he wasn't just standing. He was ministering and he was writing. You see, John was the one who was chosen by the Holy Spirit to wrap up the writings of the New Testament. John was the one who would write the final words of the Bible. He was the last contributor of divine, infallible revelation. When John laid down his pen and stopped writing, it was finished. The Bible was complete. The Bible you and I hold in our hands today, the last words written in that Bible were written by John. Let me explain how this came to be. You see, contrary to the image that most of us have about those original apostles, they were actually young men when Jesus called them. I know we think about them being old and gray, but they were not. 
Not even Jesus was old and gray. He was 30 years old when he began his ministry. And when he chose those early apostles, most of the theologians and most of the historians who wrote about them all agree that they were in their late teens and early 20s. They were just young men. But one of the disciples was much younger than all the others. And his name was John. And it is believed that John was, now hold on, it is believed that John was 13 or 14 years old when Jesus called him. Now I know that does not fit the image that most of us have in our heads about John, but it really does fit what the scripture has to say about John. Uh, now, we'll get to 1 John in just a few moments, but right now I want to read John 13, 23 through 25. It says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Now, there's a Another subject that's being discussed here, but that's not what I want you to see. Verse 25, he then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Now, you have to admit, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Isn't that an interesting passage? The one who was leaning on Jesus' bosom, the one who was lying on Jesus' breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It appears as we read verses like this that there was one disciple, there was one apostle that Jesus paid special attention to. There was one that he loved more than all the others, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Didn't he love all of them? But it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. It appears that there was one disciple that Jesus kept closer to him than all the others. You remember John was in the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. It it appears as we read scripture like this that there was one disciple that when Jesus was teaching all of his other disciples that this one disciple would be sitting ever so close to him. And there was one disciple who sometimes... It appears, as we look at Scripture, that would even recline across the lap of Jesus and lean upon his chest. Now, now, we won't think that strange at all if we understand the situation. And why would that not be the case if there was one disciple who was called at an early age much, much younger than all the others? Now, here's something else that may help you understand. And that is that John and James were brothers. In fact, most of the time in the Bible, they're referred to as James and John, right? They were the sons of Zebedee. You remember? And their mother's name was Salome. And we have some scripture in the Bible that leads us to believe that Salome and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were sisters. So Mary's son is Jesus, the son of God. Her sister's son, Salome, one of her sons, 
is John. Now, if that be the case, then this is how it played out. When John was about 30, I mean, when Jesus was about 30 years old and began his ministry and he called his disciples, one of the disciples that he called was his young first cousin, John. Only about 13 years old. And Jesus would call him around, keep him close to his side. And he held a position of closeness to Jesus that none of the other disciples had. Did you know that even the early pictures and paintings of Jesus and his, dis- and his disciples uh, portray John as a young teenager? I want you to see this. Look at this. This is one of my favorite. Can you see that? Here he is, depicted as a teenager, reclining across the lap of Jesus, head in hand, eyes closed, tired and sleepy, not attentive at all like an adult, but like a kid, like a teenager. Just a child, just a boy, perhaps a little bit spoiled. What kind of disciple is this? I'll tell you. And this is going to make our study so awesome. I'll tell you what kind of disciple this is. This was a young boy who was chosen by God to walk with the Son of God so young that he would outlive all the others. And one day, late in his life, in his 80s and in his 90s, some 70 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this kid would pick up a pen And under the infallible anointing of the Lord God of heaven, he would write the last words of Holy Scripture. And that's what we have in our Bibles right now. And that's what we're about to study. Oh, friends. And by the way, moms and dads, I've got a word for you today. Some of these teenagers in our congregation right now that seem distracted, and seem like they're not paying attention. God has his hand on them. God has chosen them. God has a plan for their lives. And after most of us are gone, God will be using them mightily in his service. Don't ever underestimate what God is up to. Maybe all the other disciples were just kind of patronizing and thought, okay, he's got his little first cousin and he's taking care of him and and we're going to have to tolerate this kid in our midst. But God had a plan. And, and, And you see, when John writes what we're about to study, John is not a teenager. In fact, all the writings of John were crammed into a few years right at the end of his life, at the end of the first century. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the book of Revelation. And he did it all right at the end of his life, at the end of the first century, some 70 years after Jesus died on the cross. Now, why is that so important? Why will that make a difference in this study? Well, you see, 
what we're about to study will be for us and for the Christians of all ages. These are the last words of divine revelation for us as Christians. These are the last things God would say to us in his word. In the big picture of Christianity, these are the final brush strokes that make it all clear and help us to understand exactly what God is saying. Now, does that mean 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation and the Gospel of John is more anointed or more important than all the other scriptures? No. It just means it's last. And I personally think there's something about the last words that God had to say. Now, What are the last things God wants to say to you and me as his children, as Christians? Well, that's what we're about to study. And over the next few weeks and months, we'll dig into it, and I'm telling you, it'll be exciting. There's a whole lot more I want to tell you about John, but we'll work that into the series. But for now, I want to just uh, leave you with that thought, and I want to move into the introduction of the book itself. And I just have to tell you right up front that one of the things I absolutely love about 1 John is that it's not written to theologians. It's not hard to understand. It's written for common, everyday, average people like you and me. It's written so we can understand it. And when this old saintly apostle who walked with the Lord, now in old age, when he picks up his pen and he starts writing, he makes it so clear you cannot miss what he's saying. In fact, John does this. John doesn't leave any of it to guesswork. What John tells us in the book of 1 John is three different times he says, I'm writing this to you because. He tells us exactly why he's writing to us. He wants us to know why he's writing, and he makes it real clear. I'll give those three verses to you. The first one is in 1 John 1, 4. You should have your Bibles open. We'll pull it up. 1 John 1, 4 says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Right. Right in the first chapter, he says, I'm writing to you for this reason. I'm writing to you that your joy may be full. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all because some 70 years before this, as a teenage boy, John sat and heard Jesus say almost the same words. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, now these are the words of Jesus, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, friends, Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus ministered to his disciples because he wanted their joy to be full. He wanted them to have fullness of joy. Seventy years later, in these last words of revelation coming from our heavenly Father through the apostle John, the last apostle, he says, I'm writing to you so you have fullness of joy. God wants us to have joy. God wants us to have full, complete, lasting joy. That's what why Jesus taught his disciples and what he ministered to them. And that's what... John will minister to us in 1 John to have joy. Here's what I want to tell you, friends. As we get into this book of 1 John, and as we begin to study it and learn it and apply it, there will be an increase of joy in this house. There will be an increase of joy in our lives and in our homes 
And I don't mean to insult you, but when I look at some of you, you look like you need an increase of joy. I mean, for the most part, this is a happy, excited church, but I see some people who come in here and and they will not crack a smile. They look like they've lost their best friend. They look like they're mad with the world. Now, I'm sure none of those people are actually in the service today, but I do see people like that occasionally. And, and, and so, so, man, an increase of joy, that alone should make us want to dive into this book and study it and devour it. I wonder if we could have a good positive confession in the service this morning. How many of you could use just a little more joy in your life? Show of hand. All right. This is going to be good. This, is, this will be exciting. Now, I, I, I want to push you just a little bit. How many of you are willing to give your attention to, to at least entertain the idea that there is a place in God where there's not just joy, there is fullness of joy? That it is complete where you don't just have joy, you are full of joy. You are overflowing with joy. You can't handle any more joy. When was the last time you said to God, God, thank you, but you got to back off just a little bit. you got to hold up. I, I just can't handle this anymore. Now, most of us don't really believe there is a place like that. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm teaching you so you can have fullness of joy. And John said, I'm writing to you so you can have fullness of joy. River of life, we are getting ready to take a journey into the fullness of joy according to the word of God. Yes. A place where there is joy unspeakable and full of grace. And man, I'm looking forward to it. I'll never forget the little chorus the Gaithers used to sing. The world didn't give it to me. And the world can't take it away from me. This happy face you see, the world didn't give it to me. And the world can't take it away from me. (laughs) This love in my heart, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away from me. This victory I have every day of my life, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away from me. I'm telling you that when we find fullness of joy, that will be our testimony. The world didn't give it to us. The world can't take it away from us. Surely, somebody here this morning has recently come to the understanding that all the pleasures of life, no matter what they may be, are fleeting, momentary, and always leave you longing for something more. What John's going to tell us is what that something more is and how to have fullness of joy. First reason, and that's reason enough, but it actually gets better. He says that our joy may be full The second reason he says he writes the book is found in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not... Say it with me. So that you may not... Wow. You knew that joy part was too good. Right. You knew we would get here, didn't you? 
He goes on to say, and if anyone has sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. John says, I'm, I'm writing to you so that you do not do this. You do not continue to live in and to practice sin. And then as we shall see in our study, as we get into 1 John, he launches into this study, this teaching, this revelation from the heart of God that spells out for us in the Christian life that when we as Christians walk with the Lord, we can't continue to practice sin. That we have to be holy. That we have to walk in holiness. And that we can't deceive ourselves. You see, the first thing he shares in this book is this. He shares, I'm writing to you because I want your joy to be full. And the second thing he writes is, I'm writing to you because I want you to be holy. I want you to stop sinning. I'm writing to you so that you will not sin and keep sinning. You have to stop. You see, John wanted us to understand. And remember, when I say John, I'm talking about God. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. John was just the human vessel laid in life who would pen the words of sacred Scripture. These are the last things God wanted to say to us. God wanted to say, I want your joy to be full and I want you to stop sinning. That's the reason I'm writing this. I'm writing it so that you'll understand that fullness of joy and holiness are inseparable. You can't separate the two. Now, you can have temporary, fleeting, momentary joys of the world, but they always leave you empty. But true fullness of joy that's lasting and complete is tied to holiness. And you can't separate the two. I know of a lot of people today, in fact, I think the church is filled with countless millions of people today who want joy, but they don't want holiness. They want the joy of the Lord, but they don't want the holiness of God. And, and, and I feel your pain. I know the comments I'll get after this service. I feel your pain. I'm in the same boat you're in. I'm honest when I tell you this. The word holiness scares me to death. I'm horrified by the word holiness. When I look in the mirror and I think about holiness, it breaks me down. I'm scared of it. I'm horrified by it. But John will tell us in this book that you can't separate the fullness of joy and holiness. And he will tell us that holiness and walking with God and getting sin out of our lives is the key that opens the door to the fullness of joy. Oh, friend. Remember, John... Many years earlier, walk with Jesus. He heard Jesus say things like this. Are you ready for this? Right out of the mouth of Jesus. A direct quote. Verbatim. Jesus would say to people, go and sin no more. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Go and sin no more. One day they brought a woman to Jesus. She was caught in the very act of adultery. She couldn't even deny it. They brought her to Jesus and, and they accused her. And Jesus, in a few words, in a few moments, in a few actions, he 
drove away every one of her accusers. And folks, I want to tell you, Jesus treated this woman with respect and with dignity. Even though she was caught in the very act of sin, Jesus treated her with kindness and grace and mercy. And then Jesus said to her, this, this is what Jesus said. He said, woman, he said, where are your accusers? Where are they? Now, this is what I want you to see. This is so important. This is how she responded. John 8, 10 through 12. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, neither do I condemn you. And then what did he say? Go and sin no more. Now, don't stop there. We always stop there, but you can't stop there. You've got to put the next verse in. Then Jesus spoke to them again. In other words, here's this woman right in front of her. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. It's okay. Your past is your past. Now go and sin no more. And then Jesus lifted his eyes and looked at the crowd and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Do you see it? But have the light of the world. What Jesus was saying to this woman is, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And I want everybody in the crowd to understand that if you follow me, you can't keep on sinning. You can't keep on walking in darkness. You just can't. These are the words of our Lord. On one occasion, Jesus healed a man. And listen to what Jesus said to him after he healed him. This is in John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. What did he say? Sin no more. Stop this thing. Bring it to a halt. Do something about it. Get radical if you have to. But sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. When was the last time you heard anybody minister anything like that from a pulpit in America? When's the last time you heard some preacher stand before a church and say, stop sinning, and if you don't stop sinning, something worse will happen to you? Now's a pretty good time, isn't it? I want you to listen to me. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He'll put your whole past under the blood. He'll wipe it out. He will remove it from you as far as the east from the west. He'll give you a new life. He'll make you a new creature in Christ with old things passed away. And behold, all things becoming new. He will do all that for you. But if you keep on sinning, something worse will happen to you. That was a pretty weak amen. Wow. (laughs) You see, friends, these words of Jesus will be echoed all through this book. John is saying, you have to stop sinning. I'm writing unto you that you can have fullness of joy. I'm writing unto you that you stop sinning. And no matter what anybody tells you, it's not okay. You have to stop. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. He says, These things I have written to you. Now, this is the third time he's done this. These things have I written unto you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now let's put all three of them together just for a few moments. He says, I'm writing to you so that you'll have joy. I'm writing unto you so that you'll stop sinning. And I'm writing unto you so that you will know that you have eternal life. Now, friends, if you know anything about history, you know that when John penned these words, things were not looking all that good for Christians or for the church. John wrote these in the days when Domitian was the emperor of Rome. Listen to what one historian said. The historian Pliny called Domitian the beast from hell who sat in its den licking blood. In the book of Revelation, John of the Apocalypse may have referred to Domitian when he described a beast from the abyss who blasphemes heaven and drinks the blood of the saints. You see, the emperor Domitian declared himself to be God and demanded that everybody in the Roman Empire bow down before him and worship. Guess what? The Christians wouldn't do that. And therefore he hated them. And he slaughtered them with no mercy whatsoever. The Christians of that day were open game, open to be persecuted, open to be tormented and killed. And it was considered a noble thing to do, some of the historians tell us. Being a Christian in that day, in the time when John wrote these words, would be the equivalent of some of us living in a nation controlled by ISIS. You see, we're hated. We would be killed. And John, against that backdrop, is saying to them, I'm writing these things to you because I want you to understand. Listen now. I want you to understand. You have something better than life. You have eternal life. That's what I want you to understand. In a world full of uncertainty, in a world where you don't know if you'll be alive tomorrow or not, I'm writing these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want you to have any doubt. Friends, when you know that you know that you know that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything on the inside of you, but it does not change anything in this negative, evil, ungodly world in which we live. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I can't tell you the truth. If I tell you anything other than that, when you know that you have Jesus, you can have fullness of joy when you're walking with Him and, and you are getting sin out of your life and you know that Jesus Christ is with you and when you die, you will go to heaven. It changes everything on the inside, but it does not change the world around you. God will not remove the uncertainties of life for us. He has never done it for any generation of Christians who have ever lived before us, and he won't do it for us. In fact, our Lord tells us just the opposite. He says, in this world you shall have, say it with me, in this world you will have tribulation. 
He didn't say, I will remove the tribulation. He didn't say, I'll take it away from you. He said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. Oh, friends, God will not take away all the problems. I wish he would. Man, I wish he would. I want him to. Sometimes I pray for him to do that. But he won't. Physical problems. Financial problems. Relationship problems. Persecution. And a thousand other uncertainties in life. (laughs) He will never completely remove those. Now, I do have some hallelujah ground to stand on. For those who walk with the Lord, there will be times, sometimes many times through the course of your life, when God will step in, when God will intervene, when God will do a sign, God will do a wonder, God will do a marvel, God will do a miracle, and God will kiss you with some favor that's just for you from heaven above. But I can tell you that even when God miraculously moves in your life and in your family, what He will not do, is he will not solve and resolve the whirlwind of conflict that's all around us. He won't do it. But what can be resolved, what can be solved, once and for all, is your personal relationship with the Lord. John says, I'm writing this to you so that you will know that you have not life tomorrow, but that you have life for all of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you put all three of these together, you really begin to to feel the excitement of what can happen as we study this book. John is saying, I want to eliminate your sadness. I want you to have fullness of joy. I want to eliminate your sin. I want you to be holy. And I want to eliminate your doubt. I want you to know that you have eternal life. What does the life of a mature Christian look like? We're going to see it as we go through this book. It's a life full of joy. It's a life full of holiness. And it's a life full of assurance. As I close today, here's what I want to present to you. I present to you, listen up. I present to you this. I present to you our Lord Jesus Christ. As a minister of the gospel, I offer him to you. The Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who can forgive, cleanse, make you brand new in Christ. I present to you our Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you that if you will come to him, if you will trust him with all of your heart, if you will repent of your sins, And you will embrace him and you will get in his word and start studying his word. I promise you upon the authority of God's word that you will see more joy and more holiness and more assurance in your future than you ever dreamed possible. But the choice is yours. Would you bow with me in prayer? Thank you again for listening to River of Life Podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. 
We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for more information and directions. Thank you, Catherine. What a beautiful song. What an amazing message. This morning, as we prepare for communion and as I prepare to share with you the Lord, what the message, the message the Lord has placed on my heart, I want to share with you some scriptures that will help us get to that point. Uh, you might want to jot a few of these down. I want to speak to you on who am I? Who am I? And that's not a new question. That's an age-old question. Who am I? Who are we? And why does God care so much about us? The first scripture I'll share with you comes from Job 7.17. And Job is believed to be uh, the oldest book in the Bible, even older than the book of Genesis. And this is what Job asked. He said, what is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him. Job, so long ago, some people believe this was written as far back as four or 5,000 years ago. Job was asking the question, who am I? Who are we? What is man that you would set your heart on him, that we would be the object of your love and your affection. He was not the only one. The psalmist asked the same question in Psalm 8:4. He said, "What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him?" The psalmist was saying, "Who are we? How could we possibly be that important? Why would you want to visit with us? Why would you want to show up in our lives?" is the question. It was a perplexing question for the psalmist. And this is not the only place. In Psalm 144.3, he asked the same question again. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? This was a puzzling question. One that they didn't have an answer for then. And I will tell you, we don't have a full and complete answer now. How could God love us so much? But it was not just a question for the Old Testament days. It was also a question for the New Testament days. Hebrews 2, 6 and 7 says, What is man that you were mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You see, all of these questions are one and the same. Who are we to you, the God of the universe? What is it about us? What would cause a holy God to care about us and to love us so much? Still, to this day, I think one of the greatest verses, if not the greatest verse in the whole Bible, is the one that we all know so well. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Why? Why does he love us so much? Why is the world so important to him? Why does he care so much for us? Who am I? Who are you? 
Why? Well, it's a question we need to ask. One of my spiritual fathers used to sing this song, and it was his favorite song, and it became my favorite song, and I'm sure some of you will remember it. Uh, When I think of how you came so far from glory... He's singing about Jesus. When I think of how he came so far from glory, came to dwell among the lowly such as I, to suffer shame and disgrace on Mount Calvary, take my place. Then I ask myself this question, who am I? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine for? The answer I may never know. Why he ever loved me so. That to an old rugged cross he would go. For who am I? Wow. Who are we? Have you ever thought about that? Why in this world does he love us. The way he does. Friends I stand before you today. To tell you that if the Bible is true, and let me just stop right here. For people of faith, there is no if. We know for a fact that it is. But I'll present it to you that way anyway. If the Bible is true, and if there is just one God, and if He created the universe, the heavens, and the earth, and if He sent His only begotten Son into the world for us, and if He suffered unimaginable cruelty for us, and if He went to a cruel cross and died for us, if He did all that for us, then it really does beg the question, Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Friends, I'll tell you. We're the object of His love. And it's all over Scripture. And even though we'll never understand that completely in this life, and we may never understand it completely, the Bible gives us some clues. It gives us some answers, some answers. Can I tell you who you are today? You are somebody that God loves. He loves you. He loves me. He loves every one of us. He loves us. Look at the person next to you and say, God loves you. Let me tell you, you just preach the word to that person. God loves you. He loves you. He loves me. And I've got some news for you. As hard as this is to completely comprehend, He loves every human being walking around on this planet. Not one person has been excluded or left out. He loves us. Do you know that person that annoys you more than any other person on the planet? God loves them. And He loves them just as much as He loves you and me. And you may be thinking, well, thank God He loves them because nobody else does. And they may be thinking the same thing about you. But according to this Bible, God loves us. He loves you. He cares for us. He cares about you. He cares about what you care for. One verse says, and this is hard to imagine, it says, cast all of your cares upon Him because He cares for you. 
every care you have, cast upon Him. Who am I? Who are you? We're people that God loves. He cares about. God wants to spend eternity with you. Sometimes my wife get on each other's nerves after a few days together. But God wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to be with you. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you and kiss you with His holy presence. He wants to embrace you. He wants to call you to Himself. That's what God wants. Who are you? I'll tell you. For some of you here today, this is who you are. You are somebody that God is waiting on. He's been waiting for a long time and He's patiently waiting. Uh, Don't be fooled. He will not wait forever, but He is waiting for you. Jesus told a whole elaborate story in the Word of God about a father whose um, son, whose prodigal, rebellious, sinful son had left and the father was waiting for him to come back home to his father. And the Bible says that when the father saw him at a distance, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. You're somebody God is waiting for. He's waiting for you to come back home, to come back to him, to come back to his embrace. Somebody... You're somebody that God wants to pardon. The presidents have been known before they left office to pardon somebody who's been tried and convicted and put in jail. And the presidents will sometimes pardon them. You're somebody that God wants to pardon. I, I know that the enemy will not allow you to even go in this direction apart from hearing the pure word of God. But I want to tell you, God does not want to punish you for your sins. God does not want you to spend eternity in hell. He does not want you to be separated from His love. And He does not want you to pay for your sins. He wants to pardon you. He wants it under the blood. And He wants it out of His sight. Who are you? Who am I? (laughs) Oh, friends, we're people that God talks to. He speaks to us. He calls us. He draws us to Himself. He wants us to be close to Him. He, he wants to visit with us. He wants to spend time with us. Who are you? Who am I? We're people that God, if He has not already, wants to adopt you. He wants to adopt you and bring you in to the immediate family of faith. That's what He wants to do. I... I tell you what, the more I read the Scriptures and the more I understand that I'm adopted, you're adopted. If you're a child of God, we've been adopted into the kingdom family. The more I love adoption. I want to tell you, those, those of you parents who are thinking about adoption, you'll never do anything more like God than adopt a child and bring them into your family and love them. Man, that's powerful. Do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? In God's eyes, we are somebody... You are somebody in God's eyes. I'm, I'm serious. He knows your name. He's crazy about you. He loves you. It's, it's amazing. I haven't, uh, read this book all the way through, but I've read parts of it, uh, by Francis Chan. Uh, this title, uh, a title of his book is Crazy Love Overwhelmed By a relentless God. I love that. That title. Crazy love. 
overwhelmed by a relentless God. Here's one of the quotes from the book. It's crazy if you think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, galaxies in E minor, loves us with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. Who am I? Who are you? I'll tell you who we are, friends. We are the object of God's infinite, redemptive, miraculous love. That's who we are. He loves us. He loves us. You are loved of God. Now, I know somebody's sitting out there saying, Okay, preacher, I get it. Move on. No! Because it's not that simple and it's not that easy and you don't really get it. I want to tell you, if we had any clue how much God loved us, we'd be jumping up and running around this building and shouting. He loves you. Oh no, friends, we haven't overdone it in the love department. I want to tell you where it's been overdone. Many have spent a lifetime with the enemy speaking to them and listening to the voice of the enemy tell them how unworthy they are of God's love. Many have spent a lifetime hearing the enemy tell them they are unlovable. A lifetime of the enemy chipping away at their self-esteem and their self-worth. And don't you kid yourself today, friends. The voice of the enemy is loud and it is effective. And there are multitudes in this world today walking around who look perfectly fine on the outside, but inside they feel like dirt. They feel empty and dead. Because they've been listening to the wrong voice their entire lives. And by the way, I want to speak to the parents of small children. If you have small children or you have grandchildren, then I've got a word for you this morning. Your voice has to be louder than the voice of the enemy. If you want to raise up godly offspring, then your voice has to be louder. It has to line up with God's Word. And you have to spend your life speaking life into them and encouraging them in the faith and telling them how much God loves them and how valuable they are and how precious they are to the Lord. People spend a lifetime being told how sorry they are and that God doesn't love them. He loves other people, but He doesn't love you. He did it in others, but He will not do it with you. Oh, friends, people need to hear that God loves them. They need to hear the truth of God's Word. They need to hear the voice of God and the voice of truth. And this is the truth. Those of you who know the Bible, you know what I'm about to say is the truth. You and I and every human being on this planet, we were made in the likeness and in the image of Almighty God. And He loves us. We are the object of His love. And we are extremely precious and wonderful and valuable in His sight. Do you know what the most valuable thing in this world is? You. You are the most valuable thing in this world. You are so valuable to the Lord our God. Oh, friends, God loves us. And not just some of us. God loves all of us. I, 
I know we don't hear a lot of preaching along this line, but God loves the worst of us. You want me to show you right out of Scripture? Let me back it up with the Word of God. Let me give you the best illustration that I know of in all of Scripture. And I'll just start this way. When we think of the great Apostle Paul, we think of a great man of God, don't we? And we should. Because he was. Or that's what he became. But the Apostle Paul didn't begin as a great man of God. Before he was the Apostle of the Lord, he was the worst of sinners. That's what the Bible teaches us. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He was mean. He was a murderer. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. Let's make it worse. He wasn't just a murderer. He was a murderer who targeted Christians. What if we knew somebody out in our society and they went around not just killing people, but they picked Christians and they killed Christians. That's what Paul was doing. He was destroying lives. He was destroying families. He was on a personal vendetta to destroy all those who associated with Christianity. He was cruel and merciless. He was bad. And you didn't want to get in his pathway. But one day, God got his attention. And one day, he got saved. And when Paul gave his testimony, this is what he said. Listen to the testimony of Paul. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of of His great patience with even the worst sinners than others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. You know what Paul said about his own salvation? (laughs) He said, I'm proof that God can save the worst of sinners. (laughs) The great apostle Paul. I'm evidence that if God can save me, He can save anybody. By the way, does anybody out here relate to the apostle Paul? That you can say to the world, listen, He saved me. If He got me, He can get you. If He saved my life, He can save your life. Now, now listen to me. Most of the time when we hear sermons on love, they they seem to be somewhat separated and detached from Scripture. But I don't want to do that today. Friends, uh, I'm not trying to tell you there is no hell. Because there is. And I'm not trying to tell you that everybody goes to heaven. Because they don't. And I'm not trying to tell you that in the end we all win. Because that's just not true. And I'm certainly not trying to tell you that God will force His love upon you. Because He will not. What I am trying to tell you today, friends, is this. That the God of the universe has loved you with a sacrificial and supernatural love that has the power to change your life forever. And you can receive it or you can reject it, but you cannot change the fact that God loves you and that He has loved you 
and that he's reaching out to you. I heard a preacher say a long time ago, it was an evangelist. I was a young man, but I never forgot what he said. And this is what he said. He said, on the road to hell, there are a thousand signs that say, stop, turn around. God loves you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to give you a new life, a new heart, a new eternity. And then he went on to say, and when a man ends up in hell, he has rejected the love of God a thousand times and more. Oh, friends, who am I? Who are you? We're people that God loves. He loves us. He loves us. And you know, I can't think of anything in all of life more tragic than to reject the love of God. Man, how tragic would that be? I've been praying that this would be a service this morning where there would be somebody who would say, you know what? Today I won't ignore the signs anymore. By the way, God may have put you in this service today to hear this message. I won't ignore the signs anymore and I won't push the love of God away anymore. Today, I understand. I get it. God loves me. And I want to receive that love. And I want to trust Him as my Lord and Savior. And I want Him to forgive me and cleanse me. You see, in just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you what we're going to be celebrating today is pure love. I'll show you the Scripture in a few moments, but what it says is this. No greater love is there on earth than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, that's what I'm doing for you. I wonder this morning, is there somebody here who would say, I won't, I won't deny it any longer. God put me in this service to hear this message. And I want to receive the love of God. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to you before you leave. But I want to ask you, if you'd like to... Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Receive His love and allow the love of God to change your life. I want you to just stand up right where you are. Just stand up. And we're going to pray with you. Everybody that stands up, we're going to pray with you. All right, thank you, sister. Remain standing. Yes, someone else. You're going to stand up and say today, I want to receive Christ. I want to receive His love. We're going to celebrate His broken body and shed blood. In just a moment, but I want to receive his love. I'm just asking you to stand up and say, today I want to trust him. Today I want to receive his love. Thank you again for listening to River of Life Podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for more information and directions.